The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So while we're waiting for people to come, do you have any comments or questions you'd like to make at this point? Yes. I was just wondering if you could comment further about then at the beginning when um, the Brahmin of uh, King Ajatasattu (laughs) says that we have a lot of work to do and to there's no way to conquer the Vajis other than through treachery or discord. And then the, um, the Buddha says, do as now seems fit to you. Yes. Um, and just what your general sort of interpretation of, you know, that is just sort of leaving, you know, the Buddha is just leaving it to people to work out their discord or... or mean, mean yeah, the, why the Buddha is saying just do as you see fit. Well, that, it's common, a uh, common way of ending. Someone comes to the Buddha and they have a discussion and they're going to take leave and the Buddha says, you know, you're leaving a great, great religious figure. And so, you know, okay, it's kind of like giving permission, okay, you can go now, do, do as you see fit. Do as you, you're okay, you, 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 can do, you can do what you want now, you're, you're excused. That's all it means. It doesn't mean go, go fight a war if that's what you think you should do. It just means, you know, you're excused, go do what you have to do. Yeah, I, I guess the, the obvious sort of thing, thing is that he doesn't respond to the last comment that, well, we're going to get busy and you know pursue treachery and discord. So you say, so you're concerned that the fact that the Buddha, uh, this minister comes and says, we're going to go attack the Vijians, just to say, this is what's happening, and the Buddha gives a teaching about how to, and, um, and then uh, says, go do what you see fit. And the Buddha should be more actively involved in saying, it's not a good idea. I think you should stop. You shouldn't fight a war. Yeah, I'm not saying either way. I was just wanting, I was, yeah, I was interested in your, what's your comment on his not reacting to it. Yeah. Um, well, the way I read it, he, he, did, he did respond. Uh, there's an etiquette. Uh, the ancient world, as in many places in the world, traditionally, had an etiquette of communication the way people talked. It's, a lot of things happen uh, in, non-verbally. So, for example, a number of these passages here, someone invites the Buddha to do something, like to have a meal or something, and the Buddha uh, consents in silence. If the Buddha says silent, then everybody understands, oh, that means he's agreed. The Buddha doesn't say yes. So that's somehow understood by many people in India at that time. So what's going on here? So, so you know, and also the kings were ruthless back then. And the Buddha was, you know, you know, you know if, if he... If he uh, protested too much, if he became an engaged Buddhist and put, you know, you know, and put, up, put up a sign at the street corners saying, you know, democracy now, and, <laughs> you know, it's probably off with his head. You know, it's, you're not going to go very far in a, in a dictatorship like that, that, you know, to protest. Uh, you know, I don't think it was in the people's minds back then to protest. It was kind of like, this is, there's this uh, great ruler of the country who has who can choose life and death over people, and there's not, other options weren't really thought about that much. So I think the Buddha didn't have a lot of options to say, stop that. But indirectly, he says that. He does it in an indirect way. He's, uh, and he says, um, 
So those of you who didn't read this, so the, the Buddha, this minister says, we're going to do this. The king is planning to do this. Um, and, um, and, now, um, and the Buddha doesn't address the, it's interesting, the etiquette here, the Buddha does not address the, the minister. He addresses Ananda. And he says, Ananda, have you heard that the Vijayans hold regular and frequent assemblies? I have heard, Lord, that they do. Ananda, so he's still talking indirectly. So, so this is part of the etiquette, right? And um, as long as the Vijayans hold regular and frequent assemblies, they may expect to prosper and not decline. Have you heard that the Vijayans meet in harmony, break up in harmony, and carry on their business in harmony? I have heard, Lord, that they do so. Ananda, as long as the Vijayans meet in harmony, break up in harmony, and carry on their business in harmony, they may be expected to prosper and not decline. It goes on like, with a number of things like this. And... Um, um, And then the, Buddha, then the Buddha turns to the minister and he says, Once, when I was in Vasali, in, at the, this other town, Vijayan town, I taught the Vijayans these seven principles for preventing decline. And as long as they keep to these seven principles, as long as these principles remain in force, the Vijayans may be expected to prosper and not decline. The Buddha is offering his opinion. He's saying, you're not going to beat these people. Because these people meet meet in harmony, they meet regularly and do all these things that takes that allows them to prosper, and they're doing the things that allow them to prosper. You don't have a, you don't stand a chance. That's, that's what he's saying to them, and that makes an impression on him. Um, then the minister says, "Remembering Gotama, if the Bajians keep to even one of these principles, they may expect, be expected to prosper and not decline. Far less all seven. Certainly the Vijayans will never be conquered by King Ajatusattu by force of arms, but only by means of propaganda and setting them against one another. And now, Venerable Gautama, may I depart? I am busy and have much to do. Brahman, do as you think fit. So, so he's like, you're excused. I have a lot to do. And what he has to do, he, he's, he, he has to go and set the Vijayans against each other. Because he's not, they're not going to beat them by army. But he's going to do an intrigue. He's going to send spies into the country and, and set, uh, set them against each other so they're no longer in harmony. And that's what the later tradition claims was he sent in spies and kind of got, or sent in kind of a turncoat kind of guy, a double agent, and who got kind of integrated into the leadership. And then quietly he'd take aside and he would uh, disparage the, uh, the others. And pretty soon they were all disparaging each other so much so that none of them wanted to come to the assemblies when, they were, when the time for assembly. And so when there was a call for assembly, then we're not going there because it's you know, so tense and I don't like those people, they don't like me, or I don't know what goes on. And so no one came to the assembly and, and, and I guess the king, Ajatata, knew, knew about this and so he timed his attack for right then because they couldn't gather together to be unified. And so he went in and conquered the country. So a little bit the Buddha gave that advice. You know, maybe the Buddha was trying to stop the war, but he gave the he, he gave the king the clue he needed to go in. You know, so that's unfortunate. So is this kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I was just curious. Very human, I guess. <laughs> I have um, uh, I thought about this when I read this. I thought, oh, this is beautiful. That here's my interpretation that the Buddha is saying, don't kill other people 
but if they are if there's here's a way that if they aren't practicing i don't know practicing well that they will fall into decline it doesn't have to be killing right but then but then he he thinks the minister i'm going to get them to decline they might be good people but i'll get them against each other but it, the decline will be because the Vajians aren't... Can't hold it together. Can't that hold it together, right? Yeah. They can't arise above the discord that starts to rise. So it's, it's a different way to... And other, right. And so then the Buddha uses this occasion, that teaching toward the, about the Vajians, and he applies it directly to the monastic order. So when, they, when, they, when the minister leaves, he turns to his monks and says, these seven principles are also, tr- seven principles are also true for, um, for you all. And... Um, so, um, as long as monks hold regular and frequent assemblies, they may be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as they meet in harmony, break up in harmony, and carry on their business in harmony, they may expe- be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as they do not authorize what has not been authorized, do not abolish what, is, what has been authorized. As long as they honor, respect, revere, and salute the elders of long standing. As long as they do not fall prey of de- to desires which arise in them and lead to rebirth. As long as they are devoted to forest lodgings, as long as they preserve their personal mindfulness so that in the future the good among their companions will come to them, and those who have already come will feel at ease with them. As long as monks hold these seven things and are seen to do so, they may be expected to prosper and decline. So this, this, these seven items for the prosperity of a Sangha is often referred to in Buddhism, and it's, it's a very important passage. Um, and you still to this day, People will uh, quote it in sanghas and communities, and uh, I think we, at our IMC's board meetings, uh, people have some of our. We have a reading at the beginning of every board meeting, some of the suttas or some some passage, and this passage has been read at the uh, at our board meetings. And the San Francisco Zen Center published it in some document they had, uh, you know, highlighted you know for their community these seven. So it's a it's a you know it's a I think it's a very to be inspired to be moved to try to organize oneself around these principles is a powerful thing for a community to do. Um, so now we're going to come into this more devotional side uh, devotional side the deification of the Buddha side of all this I tried to uh, draw a picture of earlier of the Buddha being so human and in the guided visualization if you could follow along the idea of this old man walking, walking through India coming to a river needing to cross the river and standing there you know just probably you know in my mind it's a beautiful image of I've been to India, I see these big, wide rivers there that they have in the plains, and no telephone wires, no motorboats, no cars. Just, you know, it's just a beautiful, timeless kind of image. The movie um, <clears throat> that was done in the early 70s called Siddhartha. Um, <clears throat> it's a little bit of a, of a movie version of the book Siddhartha. Um, that movie was kind of one of, the, one of the last movies that was made in ancient India. If you look at the movie, the... the, the the, the visuals of that movie, um, <clears throat> uh, they, <clears throat> they're still able to kind of find parts of India where you know, there's no telephone wires or cell phone towers or trucks and smog. And, and you get a sense from there that probably now it's much harder in India to find that, but you can get a sense of that timeless quality of ancient India. So um, um, here, 133. So he's at the river. He came to the, the, and so then the Buddha came to the river Ganges 
And just then the river was really full. So it's pretty full. Ganges is a big river. And some people were looking for a boat. And some were looking for a raft. And some were binding together a raft of reeds to get to the other side. But the Buddha, as swiftly as a strong man might stretch out his flexed arm or flex it again, vanished from this side of the Ganges and reappeared with his order of monks on the other shore. So that's pretty quick to do this, right? <laughs> Boom, he's over there. Maybe there are faster ways of getting there, but this is pretty fast. <laughs> so what's going on? I mean, suddenly, you know, we've left the realm of ordinary human beings. No ordinary person I know can do that. So here, so what's a, what, what? Wait a minute. So then some people, you know, what's going on now? One, it's, the good, it's useful to think of this text that we're reading today as being multi-layered. So at one layer, one of the primary purposes of this text is to um, aggrandize the Buddha and promote or justify the practice of worshipping and devoting the Buddha. And if you read the text from that point of view, you see that a lot, a lot of the te- way the text is, is uh, a lot of the things emphasized in the text and the way it builds is all for that purpose. So even, even having the king's minister come to the Buddha at the beginning could be read, even ministers, even kings are concerned about the opinions of the Buddha. The Buddha is not just some lowly monk kind of, you know. The Buddha is someone who even had the attention of the kings. There's a uh, passage here where, um, let's, I guess we can look at it, um, where uh, he's in Vasali and he goes and stays at the grove of um, of Ambapala, the courtesan, and where's that piece? It's early on. Here, so two fourteen. So then Ambapali, the courtesan, courtesan here means like, like a geisha. She's really wealthy. So I don't know how you know. In some areas, you know, in some places courtesans are. This is not not like a street corner prostitute. So Ambapali, the courtesan, heard that the Lord had arrived at Vasali and was staying at her grove. She had the best carriages made ready and drove from Vasali to her park. She drove as far as the ground would allow, then alighted and went on foot to where the Lord was. She saluted the Lord and sat down to one side. And as she sat, the, the Lord instructed, inspired, fired, and delighted her with a talk on Dhamma. And being thus delighted, Ambapali said, Lord... May the Lord consent to take a meal from me tomorrow with his order of monks. The Lord consented by silence. And Ambapali, understanding his acceptance, rose from her seat, saluted the Lord, and passing him up by the right, departed. Remember all the notice of passing on the right? Uh, uh, they don't have toilet paper back there, so they use their left hand for that purpose. And so the right hand is considered pure. The right side is considered pure. So you want to, uh, you know, if you're going to leave someone, you show them the right side. And that's why we circumambulate, that's one of the reasons I was told we circumambulate on the right, because the right is pure. And uh, the purer side, so you want to show that side to what's sacred. So it's, it's often, it's part of the etiquette of the time. So she left. But the Lichavis of Esali, <coughs> Lichavis are like the, the, <coughs> the noble, noblemen of the town, <coughs> Her little lord had arrived at Vasali and was staying at Ambapali's grove. 
So they had the best carriages made ready and drove out to Vasali. And some of the young Lichavis were all in blue with blue makeup, blue clothes, and blue adornment. While some were in yellow, some in red, some in white, with white makeup, white clothes, and white adornment. <clears throat> so these were the wealthy, you know, noblemen, young men, and they were dressed up in local fashion. You know, they were kind of making makeup and everything, right? It's quite something, quite a sight to be seen. And um, I kind of love it back in the ancient world that there was this kind of, you know, focus on cosmetics among the men. And Ambapali met the young Lachavis, axle to axle, wheel to wheel, yoke to yoke. So they met on the road. <clears throat> and they said to her, Ambapali, why do you drive up against us like that? <clears throat> so what I imagine is that, you know, she's this proud, strong courtesan. She's not going to move aside on the road for anybody. So there's a game of chicken going on here. You know, she's coming with her carriage, they're coming with her, their carriage, carriages, and she says, boom, you know. And they're used to getting it right away, but not from her. But so why are you doing this? Because, young sirs, the blessed Lord has been invited by me for a meal by his order of monks. Maybe she's boasting, but who knows why. She's just saying, I'm going home. I've got work to do because I'm making dinner. Ambapale, they say, give up this meal. Um, um, give up this meal for 100,000 pieces of coins. Um, so they don't, they're, they're going out there, they want to invite the Buddha to their home for meals. And she's already has the invitation accepted. So they're trying to get her to, they're trying to buy her out. They're going to give her a lot of money, a phenomenal amount of money, so that the Buddha will come to their house. But she says, <clears throat> um, young sirs, if you were to give me all of Asali with its revenues, I would not give up such an important meal. Then the Lachavis snapped their fingers, saying, We've been beated, beaten by the mango woman. We've been, we've been cheated by the mango woman. And they set out for Ambapali's grove. <clears throat> and um, so um, the, the mango thing is kind of multi-dimensional, multi-meaning, because it, uh, it also refers to her breasts, the mango breasts or something, which I guess were desirable, maybe. Um, and um, so they go to the Buddha and they try to get him to agree, but they, he doesn't. So he goes, um, so they've been beaten by this woman. So, so here, here it shows the Buddha accepting invitation from a courtesan, which is kind of nice, that even you know, some people would discriminate against such a person. There's no discrimination here, and he goes to their house, and he, he turns down the imitation of these uh, noble people. But here also, you can read it as, as uh, uh, it's, a, it's an indirect or direct way of building up the status of the Buddha. He's so important that the important people in town are fighting over him, having his meal. He's so important that offering him a meal is worth a phenomenal amount of money. This is an important guy. That's a subtext that's coming through here. Um, uh, and then um, and then there's a story later on I don't remember exactly where it is where that I told you where this, this um, student of another teacher comes uh, 
and uh, says that everyone is calm here. But he then recounts to the Buddha how his teacher is able to go into deep meditation state and not hear when 500 carts come rolling down the road. Like these ancient carts in India, I bet they were noisy. You know, they didn't have good lubrication or, you know, didn't have ball bearings and stuff. And so, you know, it was kind of jostling along and probably pretty noisy. The ox were bellowing, 500. And he would go into deep meditation, not hear anything. And so the Buddha is now going to best him. What, you know, what's going on? Besting? I would think it's someone who's liberated and free and free of identity. So I said, so, I'm, said well, I'm happy for your teacher. That's nice. I'll leave it at that. But no. Uh, the Buddha is going to say, and this is a strange story. <clears throat> he says, where is it? Here. No. Um, here. Um, Once, when I was staying at Utama, at the threshing floor, the rain god streamed and splashed, lightning flashed and thunder crashed, and two farmers, brothers, and four oxen were killed. And a lot of people went out of Utama to where those two brothers and the four oxen were killed. And Pukasa, I had at that time gone out of the door of the threshing floor and was walking up and down outside. And a man from the crowd came to me, saluted me, and stood to one side. And I said to him, Friends, why are all these people gathered here? Lord, the man said, There has been a great storm, and two farmers, brothers, and four oxen have been killed. But you, Lord, where have you been? I have been right here, friend. But what did you see, Lord? I saw nothing, friend. And what did you hear, Lord? I heard nothing, friend. Were you sleeping? I was not sleeping, friend. Then, Lord, were you conscious? Yes, friend. So, Lord, being conscious and awake, you neither saw nor heard the great rainfall and floods and the thunder and lightning. That is so, friend. And then that student of the other teacher said, thought to himself, this is wonderful. This is marvelous. These wonders are so calm that they neither see nor hear when the rain god streams and splashes, lightning flashes and thunder crashes. Proclaiming my lofty powers, he saluted me um, and passed to my right and departed. Um, So then he takes refuge in the Buddha, this guy. He thinks he's so impressed by him. So here, (coughs) somehow this lightning flashing and the storm gods raining is louder, more dramatic than 500 carts. And the Buddha is able to stay in meditation and not know that these people are being killed next door who need help. (laughs) It's a strange story. I think it's strange, you know. You know, what's more important? There's a beautiful Jewish story. Uh, Some uh, Jewish man... Uh, in, a, in a yeshiva or something, praying. And, um, and a baby in the room next door is crying. The teacher comes in and sees the, the student praying. And he says, what's going on here? You're praying. Don't you hear the baby next door? And he said, no, I'm not. I didn't hear the baby. I was busy praying. And he said, if you're really praying, uh, you would even notice a fly on the wall. If you're really praying, you'd really be attentive and aware of what's going on. And here it's kind of this trance-like state which you can get into in deep meditation. But this is considered to be really important and lofty. And so here you see an an attempt to try to build up the status of the Buddha. He's even better than the other meditation teachers of his time. Is uh, is a subtext here. He's a really important guy. Um, This guy who who 
the student of the other teacher, is so impressed, takes refuge in the Buddha, and then he gives him <coughs> golden robes to wear. And the Buddha puts on these golden robes. <coughs> uh, <coughs> um, Ananda, having arranged one set of the golden robes on the body of the Lord, observed that against the Lord's body it appeared dulled. <coughs> and he said, it is... <coughs> excuse me. It is wonderful, Lord. It is marvelous how clear and bright the Lord's skin appears. It looks even brighter than the golden robes in which it is clothed. So here, the Buddha is being seen as a radiant, shiny person. The gold, the gold robes are not even are dull compared to it. Again, it's kind of building up the spiritual resume, <coughs> credentials of the Buddha. <coughs> Sometimes when people do die, they do kind of, sometimes do get very clear complexion, kind of peaceful and radiant. So maybe it's not so far-fetched, but still. It's part of this many, many places in this in text where the Buddha's status and specialness is being highlighted. It gets even better. Because um, the Buddha is coming to his last place of resting. And a man is one of his oldest disciples is fanning him, and the Buddha, in seemingly in a harsh way, says, "Step out of the way." And Ananda says, "What's going on? Why are you doing that?" And the Buddha says, "Ananda, the gods of the ten world spheres have gathered to see the Tathagata for a distance of twelve yojanas. Yojanas like twelve miles, so like really big, hundred miles here, around this grove. There is not a space you can could touch with a point of a hair." that is not filled with mighty devas, and they are grumbling. We have come a long way to see the Tathagata. It is rare for the Tathagata, a fully enlightened Buddha, to arise in the world. And tonight, in the last watch of the Tathagata, the Tathagata will gain final Nibbana, and this mighty monk is standing in front of the Lord, preventing us from getting a last glimpse of the Tathagata. But Lord, what kind of devas can the Lord perceive? Ananda, they are sky devas whose minds are earthbound. They are weeping and tearing their hair, raising their arms, throwing themselves down and twisting and turning, crying, All too soon the Blessed One is passing away. All too soon the welfarer is passing away. All too soon the eye of the world is disappearing. And they are earth devas whose minds are earthbound, who do likewise. But those devas who are free from craving endure patiently, saying, All compounded things are impermanent. What is the use of this? What's the use of crying and lamenting? So that's a pretty impressive <clears throat> visit that all these you know, gods are visiting. What one person standing in front of the Buddha, how that blocks the view of all these people, you know, they, all different directions. I don't know how it, how it works. But, but, um, so what is a subtext? That, that the Buddha is such an important spiritual figure that even the gods come and worship him. I mean, the gods come and pay their respects. And not just a few of them, but like this, multitudes of them come. The Buddha was an important dude. You know, he's spiritually a very significant guy. Um, and then, this interesting passage where the Buddha, the Manada asks, what do we do with the Tathagata's remains? The Buddha says, um, so I'll read the full passage reading before. Where is this? So this is 5.11. Ananda, 
they should be dealt with like the remains of a wheel-turning monarch. Wheel-turning monarch is like a, like, you know, the, they say, that's kind of like the, the archetype of a world-ruling monarch, someone who rules, uh, uh, rules a whole known world. And how is that, Lord? Ananda, the remains of a wheel-turning monarch are wrapped in a new linen cloth. This they wrap in teased cotton wool and this in a new cloth. Having done this 500 times each, they enclose the, body, the king's body in an oil vat of iron, which is covered with an other iron pot. Then having made a funeral pyre of all manner of perfumes, they cremate the king's body and they raise a stupa at a crossroads. So here again, the status of the Buddha, it's being compared to that of a world-ruling monarch the highest secular authority that, that, that ancient India could imagine. And he's been, been going to be cremated in this elaborate way. Um, one scholar said, if you really did this with 500 cloths wrapped around and around, the Buddha would be this big ball. <laughs> you know, it's... And then the Buddha goes on, Ananda, there are four persons worthy of a stupa. Who are they? Atatagata Arhat, fully enlightened Buddha is one. A Pacheka Buddha is one, a disciple of the Thagata is one, and a wheel-turning monarch is one. And why is each of these worthy of a stupa? Because, Ananda, at, at the thought, this is a stupa of the Thagata, or the others, people's hearts are made peaceful. And then at the breaking up of their body after death, they go to a good destiny and re-arise in a heavenly world. That is the reason, and those are the four who are worthy of the stupa. So here, this passage is not only liking the Buddha, putting the Buddha in a very high status, four people in the world who are worthy of worshiping as a stupa, four categories of people, but also it's saying stupa worship is a good thing. You know, that this is something that's worthy to do. And it, it, it describes why. It says, if you go to a stupa and remember the Thagata or some of these other enlightened beings or the monarch, this will make your heart peaceful. So it has an effect, an emotional effect. And that emotional effect, if that stays and lingers, then uh, that will be a condition for a good rebirth. And this is the kind of the theory that Buddhism has for dying. That for people who are not enlightened or clearly on the path to enlightenment, that the best way to die is to put your mind in a good, peaceful state. So that and that creates the best conditions for good rebirth, and this is uh, in Asia, in much of Buddhism. This uh, for many lay people, this is often the strategy that's done, is to help them have this kind of good feeling. Often the feeling is, is called pasada. Pasada is serene faith or joyful faith, peaceful heart. Um, so here it's championing the stupa worship. Now it's possible that this is. Um, uh, anticipating or kind of uh, the first hints of the, the whole phenomenon of stupa worship in Asia. <clears throat> it could also be what scholars think that this passage was inserted into the text after stupa worship became a big deal in Buddhism in order to find an early justification for it. So the text here is justifying, one way or other is justifying the uh, stupa worship. In fact, stupa worship here gets the approval, the the sanction of the Buddha. And you can't get much better sanctioning of stupa worship. And there's a lot, it still goes on to this world, to this day. 
And uh, even places like Spirit Rock, they're planning to have a stupa for all the teachers. Chances are, if things go the way they could plan, some of my ashes are going to end up sprinkled into that little stupa. And you guys can go and circumambulate. <laughs> the right side, remember? Um, Um, and then the Buddha comes to his um, final place of resting. So he comes to the last place of resting. He lays down between two salt trees, very no, 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 uh, majestic, noble tree in India kind of like the redwoods of our time. So he lays down between two salt trees. And as he does so, the twin salt trees burst forth with an abundance of untimely blossoms, which fell upon the Thagata's body, sprinkling it and covering it in homage. Divine coral tree flowers fell from the sky, meaning celestial flowers fell. Divine sandalwood powder fell from the sky, sprinkling and covering the Thagata's body in homage. Divine music and song sounded from the sky in homage to the Buddha. <clears throat> so here again, <clears throat> this is homage to the Buddha, respect to the Buddha, and he's receiving it from nature, the, the tree spirits or whatever, getting the trees to blossom in an untimely way, off-season. And we have uh, these divi- the divine beings uh, sending down their music and flowers from the heavens. So that's also, you know, th- this, this is a pretty hot guy, right? Uh, so, um, now in terms of the timing of the Buddha's death, the Theravadan world says that he died <clears throat> in Vishak, which is the month of May, the full moon. And in fact, the Theravadan tradition celebrates the birth, the death, and the enlightenment of the Buddha all on the same day. It's, uh, if, you, if you kind of try to figure out the chronology of the Buddha's last months from this text here, it's hard to get to May. Because what happens in here he, uh, he takes his rains retreat, and rains retreats are like from July to October. And it, seeming, it looks like at the beginning of that, but maybe near the end, uh, we don't know exactly where, the Buddha s- declares that he has three months left to live. So even if it's like, you get to October, November, December, January, because uh, he's going to die then, but at the end of those three months. So... In the, in, the, in the Japanese tradition, they, they say his, the Buddha's death is in February, February 8th, I think. Uh, some other people say it's December time. So there's different dates for when the Buddha died. And how the Theravadins got to May, I don't know how that happened. Maybe they just like to be efficient and do all their holidays together, <coughs> get it over with. Um, but it seems like, you know, he'd, uh, you know, that's somewhere according to this chronology, according to this text here, three months after the rains at the latest. It could have been earlier. It's also a good time to walk through India because uh, later in the spring it gets pretty hot. And, uh, but if he, was in, you know, if he was close to the southern end of his journey for the rains and he was up at his hometown before the rains, if he walked down from there in spring and early summer, before the rains. I've been to India <clears throat> that time of year. I was in, in Bodh Gaya, that part of the India in May. 
and boy, was it a good time to visit Bodhgaya there because no one else was there. It was extremely hot. So even the gods, you know, grieved the loss of the Buddha. And then um, it, it goes on and on, you know, so the, the deification of the Buddha. Um, then he finally dies, <clears throat> which we'll talk more about later. Uh, and there's an earthquake, because that's what happens when Buddhas die, there's earthquakes. And then he died, and the malas, the local people, were told about it, so they came back. Uh, oh, uh, back out, and um, they honored, paid respects, worshipped, and adored the Lord's body with dance, song, music, with garlands and scents, making awnings and circular tents in order to spend the day there. <clears throat> so here's a description of someone's idea of how you would pay homage or worship the death of an important religious uh, speaker. Uh, uh, teacher and um, it's a little bit different than how um, these Protestant Buddhist types would celebrate someone's death they're not going to be dancing in Zen Center after my friend died and uh, you know it's not my style but um, and you know here at IMC you know we're kind of like this white Protestant Buddhist kind of you know in terms of ritual and things you know we don't even sing or we don't do anything, right? Sit here and couch potatoes. You know, religiously, we're pretty dull. But, uh, uh, and then people think, oh, this is what Buddhism is. It's dull and unritual, and, you know, just because that's, you know, it's just I'm Norwegian, right? And that's what it means. That, that's what it means. Norwegian Lutheran, that's all. You're, that's what you get. And if, uh, and if uh, you know, if I had come out of the Indian background, which most Indian Buddhists did, right? They came out Indian, you know. It would be much more lively. In fact, when I was at um, a Buddhist ceremony in Nepal, um, I was uh, in a temple, Buddhist temple. There were some lay musicians who were playing their sitar and tabla and beautiful Indian kind of music and playing kind of Indian style, um, uh, uh, kind of uh, sort of ragas, kind of just devotional, very, very, very loud, fast emotional, devotional music uh, in this Indian way. And they were rocking out. And, and they, what they were rocking out with was Buddham Saranam Gachami. You know, here, here at IMC, it's like Buddham Saranam Gachami. You know, <laughs> you know it's like, you know, it's like <laughs> funeral or something. <laughs> yeah, but there, it's like they were rocking out and dancing. And, and, um, and my first thought that went through my mind when I, when I saw that, I said, oh, I was kind of dismissive. Oh, that's Buddhism influenced by Indian culture. And, and as, soon as, as soon as I heard my mind say that, I said, wait a minute, Gil. <laughs> Buddhism came from India. That's the whole thing, right? So, I mean, this was my, my bias was coming into play. So, <clears throat> so, so here, and, and, th- and down through the ages in India, um, this is much more, kind of the, at least for lay people, how uh, celebrations, festi- Buddhist festivals were conducted. Um, with uh, dance and song and music, garlands and scents, awnings and tents. And you have base reliefs. You have these sculptures from 
the second century BCE, uh, depicting Buddhist festivals. And clearly people are dancing and playing music. And there's one beautiful one where someone's hanging in a tree or, I forget, or leaning out of a window. And it, it clearly whistling. He has you know, his fingers, two fingers in his mouth like you would when you whistle. And, um, and one, one, one they have this clearly dancing, these musical people playing musical instruments. And they're clearly dancing because the person in the middle is twirling around. And the way you know he's twirling around is um, back then they wore kind of like togas. And, um, and so his toga is spun out to the side, you know, to one side like this, up and to the side. And um, they didn't wear underwear. So you see his naked butt. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's dancing, right? Um, And then the devas come and do the same thing. The devas come to visit after the Buddha died. Um, and they also sing and dance and play music. And um, then they have trouble lighting. The, they're going to have a pyre. They're going to burn the Buddha. And um, it won't light. It won't light. And so someone realizes that... Uh, uh, one of the monks realizes, no, it's not going to light until one of the Buddha's prime disciples, Makashapa, comes. And as it turns out, Makashapa is somewhat far further away, some days away, I don't know how far away. He doesn't know the Buddha's died. But someone who was there when the Buddha died picked up one of those divine flowers that came from the sky and was carrying it. And when he passed Makashapa on the road, Makashapa said, what's going on with the flower? And the guy said, oh, the Buddha died. So the Makashapa head, uh, headed up to where the Buddha was. But an interesting, interesting thing happened. So he was there, Makashapa was there with his uh, group of monks, probably 500 or something. And um, 500 monks. So this guy comes and says, the Buddha died. One of those monks in the, at that group says this. Well, and sitting in the group was one Subhada who had gone forth late in life. And he said to the, those monks, Enough, friends, do not weep and wail. We are well rid of the great ascetic. We were always bothered by his saying, It is fitting for you to do this, it is not fitting for you to do that. Now we can do what we like and not do what we don't like. That's quite something. It's quite something to be in here. And um, so there's a number of ways. You know, one is a way of looking at this. One is that um, uh, this is an historical event. You know, usually you don't, usually when you aggrandize your founders, you don't put in little things that are kind of point out a monk, there was a monk who was thinking in this funny way. Another possibility is that uh, this was put in there to justify Mahakashapa's later attempt to create the canon. Mahakashapa was the person in charge a few months after the Buddha died, of gathering the monks together and begin creating the canon, the collected works, the authorized works, uh, teachings of the Buddha. And so here we see the need for that. Now these monks are going to do whatever they wish. And we, before that happens, and we have to kind of create some kind of, some, some, you know, some, some agreed upon reference point for which the tradition can be organized. So then Mahakashapa finally makes it up there. And when he does, um, only then does the pyre um, 
So then, then the Mahakashapa the Great went to the Mala Shrine, to the Lord's funeral pyre, and covering one shoulder with his robe, joined his hands in salutation. So he put his hand together in kind of namaste. Circumambulated the pyre three times, and uncovering the Lord's feet, paid homage with his head to them. And 500 monks did likewise. And when this was done, the Lord's funeral pyre ignited of itself. So again, it's light of itself. It's more of this kind of magical stuff going on. And um, so here we see another example of the devotional aspect. One of the practices is circumambulating. And then bowing at the feet, uh, I, my understanding is that uh, in India, uh, Indian religion is very hierarchical. There's a lot of hierarchies that's put up, you know, whether it's castes, and all kinds. But one of the hierarchies is body parts. So your head has a higher status than your feet. And so um, you don't want uh, someone's head. And so, so your head is the highest part of your most highest status part of your body. Your feet is the lowest. If you go to a, a person and put your head at their feet, bow down and put your head at their feet, you're really elevating them high above you. It's a statement of, of, of ranking, of hierarchy. And so, um, so here, Makashapa um, uh, is bowing, is, uncovers the Buddha's feet and bows to his feet. It's kind of a way of kind of veneration of holding the Buddha high up. And then the Buddha is, is uh, burnt and then when, he, when, um, when the body, Lord's body was burnt up, a shower of water from the sky and another, and another which burst forth from the sala trees extinguished the funeral pyre. So more magic, more supernatural stuff. So this, the, the, the text is replete with this kind of things. What's the purpose of it? I suggest that part of the subtext is to continually aggrandize the Buddha, to say that this religious person was almost like a god, very special. And so we have in the text this juxtaposition of, or this contrasting position of uh, some seemingly a human person with human frailties and issues, being sick and everything, and then the issues of someone who, or the, 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 the view of someone who is supernatural, is divine, is, you know, lives beyond uh, what's uh, human. And this human side became more, this, this divine side of the Buddha became more and more important in the history of Buddhism. You can actually see in the, in the growth of Buddhist texts down, down through the centuries a clear in, uh, um, uh, growth in uh, hagiography, which means the, the study of the saints, the, uh, the mythical stories that created to make a person more and more saintly. You see the Buddha becoming more and more treated as a god, almost like a god. And... Um, and worship that way. And some, in the Mahayana tradition, it, uh, they take it to the fur- furthest extreme, certain schools of Mahayana Buddhism. The Theravada kept, keep trying to kind of root the Buddha back to being a human being, and, but only kind of halfway make it because there's such a strong divinization process going on there as well, as you see in this text here. Um, but the divine aspect of the Buddha raises some problems. Um, if you're divine, why can't you live forever? Or if you're divine, why do you get sick? If you're divine, um, why can't you live out the full span of your life? 
And that, the understanding back then was the full span of life was 100 years. And the Buddha's dying at 80. And if he's such a great person, how could he die when he's 80 instead of waiting till he's 100? And so these people who were kind of wanted to or needed to see the Buddha as being divine had these problems to answer. And part of what this text is about is trying to answer those questions. And in the afternoon, when we come back to look again at his, at his death, uh, we'll look at uh, some of the issues, some of the questions and some of the answers around, um, you know, how could the Buddha, how could a god die at the mere age of 80? As opposed to living the full span of life and other things. So I think that's enough. Um, um, there's one more little thing I want to mention about the worship and devotions you find in Buddhism. And um, on 522, so the, what's happened here is that the Buddha is lying down in the grove. He's going to die. And uh, a messenger has been sent to the local people to come and pay the last respects to the Buddha. They come out to the Buddha. Malas come. And uh, First, one at a time, they come to worship the Buddha, but the nun says, this, this is going to take forever. This guy's dying. We can't have everybody do it one at a time. So they're going to come as, as groups of people. They can do it much more efficiently. Uh, and so um, then, um, um, and so they do, and they come, up to the, they come up to the Buddha, and they presented themselves to the Buddha, and, it, and one group at a time, they said, uh, oh, and then the Nanda introduces them to the Buddha and says their name, Lord. The mala, so-and-so, and his children, his wife, his servants, and his friends pays homage to the Lord's feet. Now you know why it's the feet, right? So, but they're saying their names. Their names are important. And, and you find down through history of Buddhism in Asia is a very common custom of stating the names of a devotee or stating the names of the person making a donation. It was very strange for some of us Americans to go to Burma and see... Uh, you know, it, the meals were, uh, were paid for often by donors, which is a nice thing. But then there'd be this big, big blackboard, and the donors' names were on the blackboard. And this kind of went against the grain for many of us Westerners, where, you know, if you make a donation, you're not supposed to kind of blast out, you know, to everyone and see that you made the donation. You're supposed to be a little bit humble or quiet about it or discreet about it. So it seemed to us. But uh, 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 it seems that this is a continuous tradition of stating a person's name. And, um, and, it, and it's, it does a number of things. Um, um, by stating a name in front of the Buddha, say, so-and-so is here worshiping you, there's a better chance that the Buddha remembers who they are, kind of takes them in, knows who they are. It also is a fuller way of paying homage because if you say your name out loud so everyone can hear, then you're not hiding it. Like I know some of Westerners, maybe some of you, are happy coming here to IMC when your family of origin doesn't know about it. <laughs> you know, but you're not going to blast it out, you know, at Thanksgiving with all your cousins and everything, you know. I'm sitting, I'm a meditator, I, you know, go to IMC. Whereas you go to Spirit Rock, you know, and other people are, where do you sit? Do I sit at IMC? You know, that's easy. But the idea to actually formally say to the world, so everyone can hear, is a much stronger statement than if you keep it privately to yourself. The third reason is that sometimes uh, by state, a name is considered to be very powerful in India. It's like a mantras have these kind of uh, 
um, the sounds have symbolic or spiritual power to them. And so if you say your name, uh, it's kind of like in those pi- ancient pictures, if you say, or some cultures where you take a photograph of someone, you have some power over them. Or if you know someone's name, you have some power over them. Names have power and, and that associated with you. And if you have your name associated with a powerful spiritual person, that somehow you partake in that power, or somehow you're connected to that in an auspicious way. And so you find in, in India, in ancient India, um, uh, in the ancient Indian monuments that were built, stupas and stuff, you find inscribed on the pillars and the walls the names of the donors. And sometimes the names of the donors are inscribed in, inscribed in places where no one can see it. It's not really a matter that your name is known by everybody else. It's a matter that your name is somehow placed, tucked away in that place of power that these you know, stupas and place are places of power associated with that person. So you find here in this text hints or suggestions, not just hints, but the beginning of this Buddhist devotionalism or references to it in a way that's more concentrated here than any other place in the Pali Canon. And uh, it, uh, it um, speaks of what's coming in Buddhism. Whether it speaks of what's coming or whether it was written later and put back into the early tradition, we don't know. But it certainly represents this thing, what happened. And, um, and therefore, uh, most scholars think that the Parinibbana Sutta is a pretty late sutta. It was written probably, composed after, well after the time of the Buddha, as much of the discourses in the Long Discourses of the Buddha. This whole book here is called The Long Discourses of the Buddha. And most scholars say most of this was, uh, was written, some of the last of the Pali suttas to be composed, and well after the life of the Buddha. And you find in here a lot of supernatural, a lot of magic, uh, a lot of deification of the Buddha in the way that you don't see it in the, early, in the earlier suttas, like the middle-length discourse and things like that. So it kind of belongs from a different era. And I asked one very famous American monk who's a scholar and translator, what, do you, what, do you, you know, what, what about this text, the long discourse in the Buddha? And he basically said, oh, I basically ignore it. Because you know, the, the, all those elements are in it. But it's here in the tradition, and this is what we have to contend with and figure out what to do with. If you react to it because you don't like this devotionalism, some of you might not like it, then I suggest you put that reaction aside and read this like great literature, like a play, and then see if you, you know, how that devotionalism and all this magic and supernatural stuff, how that appears and is interpreted and, and related to when, um, when it's more like fiction, myth, than if you're trying to struggle with it being historical or something. So, any comments or questions? Yes, Aaron. It's this, <clears throat> uh, the couple of pages right around, I'm just not really sure what the impression is here, a couple of pages right around uh, the Buddha interacting with Mara, renouncing the life principle, and then Ananda, he tells Ananda, the four roads to power have been mastered, and I've, I'm supposed to be able to live for 100 years, why didn't you ask me? And yeah. he says, he actually says, Ananda, Yours is the fault. Yours is the failure. Like he's blaming him for right. his death. And uh, I thought, if you don't mind, I, that's that's what, that was for the afternoon. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> we, we, we haven't covered that yet, so the stuff I've covered would probably be good to discuss. In that case, 
So, because the last part of the day, we'll talk about the death of the Buddha and those kinds of issues. Some people are concerned about the death of the Buddha because it looks like suicide. Some people have, you know, and it's just okay. You know, what's, what's this about? I have a question from this earlier presentation. So when he said he had three months to live, I assume at that point he had eaten the pig's delight? No, it's before, well before that. Well before that? Yeah, it's three months before. Pig's delight was the last day. Okay, so, so when he said he had three months to live, he just... He knew. <laughs> it sort of reminds me of um, the Bible in the sense that it's a lot of stories by a lot of people who lived well after the Buddha um, and um, it kind of reminds well it's a question I don't know much about the Suttas so I question why one studies them with such avidity. Sorry? Why one studies them so carefully and closely if they are a bunch of stories made up by a bunch of people who lived years after. Like any holy book. Yeah. I, I'm assuming the Quran is similar. Yeah, so I mean, there's many answers to that question. Uh, some people um, um, believe lock, stock, and barrel, the whole thing. And it's part of their devotionalism. It's, it's inspiring and meaningful for them to read it and learn about it. And they're so, it's so moving uh, to take this as being literal truth. That's why some people study it. Some people study it because they feel they're pearls of wisdom to be found. And so they're looking for those individual pearls and they put aside other things. Some people read it like, um, not as, uh, as uh, fact, but as, as, but as literature. And it, it's a great epic discussion about the end of someone's life and they milk it for all the symbolic and archetypical uh, value they can. Some people, um, um, yeah, so there's, there's all kinds of re- ways, many, many ways of reading a text. Well, but like a Bible, one, could, one can take what one likes and justify positions. Yes. Yeah, so that's why I'm kind of confused. I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm seeing all these people with their books taking notes, you know, and so forth. It doesn't strike me as that kind of text, but that's me. So that's, that, it, it, that's it, why it, I It's not this. one text. It's, there's, there's multiple texts, multiple layers, multiple approaches and ways to relate to it. And for people who have been involved in the Buddhist tradition for some time, um, I think it's useful to get educated about the tradition, the texts, what goes on, uh, even things that we don't agree with and like. It's good to kind of have it under your belt so that when you're digesting and processing or understanding or getting a, a survey of the tradition, you can kind of get to understand the full range of what's going on. And if you understand the full range, then it's easier, I think, to find our own way through it all. And, um, and so easier to differentiate and be wise about all the different things you hear and see and encounter. And, and um, um, so that's one way. Another, you know, another way, you know, I don't know why people are taking notes, but another way of reading this is that uh, you know, some people like to read things like this that are, that are kind of supernatural. They don't necessarily believe it, but um, it kind of opens their mind, their hearts. It kind of speaks to something inside of them, some religious sentiments, religious feeling, emotion, that kind of stops their mind, opens them up to the, what they call the mystery. They say, I don't know if this is true, they say, but you know, it makes me feel connected to the mystery. And that feels so great to some people. 
And, um, and so they like, and, and, and some of the Mahayana literature the texts are so much more supernatural than this. And the scale, the, the, this cosmic scale in which things are operating in. And you kind of, it's like, look, you know, you know, some people like to get uh, on their desktop, you know, their screensavers, they get uh, NASA photo, photographs from NASA. That, you know, these beautiful deep space photographs from the Hubble spacecraft and stuff. And you look at that, you know, it's like, you know, it's like mind-stopping. Wow, it's like for some people, it's like that's devotional. Then, wow, look at that. Well, for some people, reading these sutras, you know, these supernatural out of this world, cosmic supernatural display of stuff, they don't believe it, but it just—it's kind of like poetry that stops their mind or opens them up in a dramatic way. So there's many ways of reading, and um, and it's good to know them all. Yes, Rick. So a question that arises for me is that in the devotional sense and making someone higher and higher and they're the ones that know, they're the divine beings, that I put all my questions in the way that I should be totally on that person, which then unresolves me from knowing what the true answer is. And then when I look at the teachings, though everything he was teaching is to say, look within yourself to find the answers and on the devotional side it's like oh well he knows this person knows and so it it kind of takes for me a little bit seems like it turns away from what the buddha was pointing to it seems to have that aspect a little bit yes it could and uh, so that's what we'll see in the afternoon in the afternoon we'll go into the text from a different point of view, which is a point of view, what is the teachings, what are the dharma, and, and re- addressing this kind of very kind of issue. But for now, I'll just say that um, it's such a relief to have someone else tell me what's true. It's, <laughs> you know, I just sit back and just let, you know, just, I'll just kind of rest and go along, and you know, it's a lot of work to, and to, and to come to these classes and study and try to really get underneath it all and figure it out for myself. I mean, it's so hard to understand things. I just want someone to tell me. <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> but uh, but you know that's one approach. You know, it's people. You know, that's one approach some people have. It's a lot of work. But it also dissolves one of their actions. It's like yeah, know, I don't like, I don't want to have any responsibility here. Yeah. Please, please, no responsibility here for this life, and I just you know ride on the coattails of the Buddha. <laughs> yes. Somewhat along the same lines, um, the whole hagiography to me undercuts the inspiration of the first aspect of the taking refuge, which is that there. I believe in the, or um, I take refuge in the Buddha, in in the fact of the Buddha's having been a human being who became enlightened. And if it's this divine being, it's like, well, okay, guys, we can try, but we ain't got a chance. <laughs> so for me, it, it undercuts it undercuts the um, inspirational or aspirational. Yeah, but yeah, I agree completely with you. And for some people, for other people, it's actually more inspiring to take refuge in a divine being. Uh, a refuge means a powerful person. That that powerful person is the person who's going to, because the person's so powerful, that person can really help me get by in my life better. I can't do it on my own. So if I pray to this divine being, they'll intercede. They'll make the crops grow. They'll 
do whatever needs to happen. And, yeah. some, pe- and some people really, really rely on that. The idea of uh, relying on themselves is really hard. And um, what's been pointed out by scholars of religion is that uh, the people, the peoples, people who, um, whose lives are hopeless, where they're down and out, living horrible, painful, miserable lives. And their whole population of people live this way. And they don't see any possibility of any improvement. There's a very strong correlation that those people are the ones who put their hope into their future lifetimes. Because that's the only hope they can see. I mean, they're slaves and they're being treated brutally and there's no way out of slavery. And so, you know, you're going to take away their hope, say, oh, you're responsible. You should figure this out on your own. You know, it's, um, you know, that's, that is inconceivable for them. And, uh, you know, there's so many different, and I I use that example, but said there's so many different kinds of people in this world that, I don't know if you were doing this, but we want to be very careful not to read the ancient world, these people and all what's going on here, through the filter of, you know, modern American culture and acculturation of who we are and how we see the world, how we, we, we do things. And that we don't know what the needs that people have, the struggles they have, and what they're trying, the best they have to try to cope with something. And if, the, you know, there are people who, you know, if I'm not going to help them get out of slavery, I don't think I'm going to go there and try to take away their hope either. Thank you, that's helpful. Because one, is this on? Working? Yeah. yeah. Because um, it strikes me that there's a, parallel to um, Christianity, which is, seems to me that there may have been a fear, both with the Buddhism and in the uh, messages of Jesus, that the teachings of Jesus, that the messages weren't enough, that a human being said these things. It had to be from a divine being. And I personally find that a little sad. But you're Help me be a little less judgmental and um, <laughs> a little bit more compassionate. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, please. This might sound crazy, but um, can't they both exist together? I mean, they do in this text. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they don't. I guess it doesn't bother me. I mean, I can see the human being, and I can see the divinity in the human being and i don't i and i i I don't see there doesn't seem to be a problem because i feel like everyone has that possibility i mean so it doesn't make me i mean it doesn't i mean he was a he he was a man and he reached enlightenment and I, i think we all have that possibility and we all have our moments but what does it mean to be enlightened does it mean that you now can uh, jump over the Ganges rivers in a second? No. Does it mean that heavenly flowers music comes down when you're... But it could mean that you see things in a different way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, it could and, mean. And that's, so, what it, that's what it does mean. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so those, those, those um, writings don't seem so far out because you do see things in a different... You have those experiences, you know, where you hear the trees talk. I mean... 
I mean, those things happen. And so that's what I mean. I don't think it's black or white. I, mean, I think yeah. that the spirit world kind of weaves in and yeah. out. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. So and, uh, I, I don't know. <clears throat> and it probably what, doesn't sound too Buddhist. That's but. nice. And that's one of the things, a point I wanted to make in the afternoon was, was there's, there's a way in which this, certain issues that this text makes black and white and that uh, it may be not so helpful sometimes to think in black and white terms but to see that things are a little more gray or interactive than that. And, um, but I think that uh, for many people, I think in our general Vipassana circles here in the West, if anything, we kind of lean in the direction of the human side of things, the ordinary side of things, away from the divinization side of it. And I think it's very important uh, for our community people at least to know that there's more to Buddhism. You don't have to agree with it or, or be part of it, but to know that Buddhism, if you want to flesh out Buddhism as a whole, these, these elements are an important part of it. And, um, and so this text kind of points to that direction as well. And some of this stuff, you know, uh, the word presages, you know, uh, is kind of an early uh, example of some of the things that you might end up doing. I mean, for whatever reason, you know, that uh, kind of to feel connected to the tradition, to feel because the tradition talks about it and be, because it has, you know, it's, it's, you know every, every people need to have rituals as a, as a language of expression, expressing emotions and beliefs and ideas. And rituals means you have to do something. So what are you going to do? So, so you know, IMC is going to have its retreat center, hopefully, some point soon. And maybe the property is big enough. I can imagine that it might be nice to build a stupa there, you know, and, and uh, maybe with a, with a, maybe the stupa would have a, uh, be written on it something like freedom, you know, because of freedom is, or enlightenment or being awake, and that's an important quality, and the stupa somehow becomes a reference point for that, a reminder of that, just like this, the statue here is a reminder of that. And then we have the stupa, you know, maybe we sprinkle some of our people in there, you know, it's nice to have people. And, you know, have some place to put people and remember them and kind of the poignancy of life and death. And then I imagine we have a stupa and then I imagine that people now start walking around clockwise because that's what our tradition does. And now you see it goes back so far as this. And, you know, you don't believe in necessarily the gods and heavenly flowers and jumping over rivers and all that, but... But uh, some of the devotionalism is expressed in a very modest, mild way, in the same forms as the ancient Indians did, going around this clockwise. I can see, you know, that would be a simple, nice thing. Tony. The other, the other Tony thing. I've never come across the passages in the, in the text myself, but I've been told by art historians that the Buddha requested that there not be images of himself made. And there certainly weren't images of him for a while, at least till the Mahayana, I guess. Um, so there, there seems to be, if, if that's correct, and it, at least it's correct that, that the early images were images of footprints in in the mud or, or uh, dharma wheels or other things but not images of him at first that he was requesting uh, not to be he didn't want anyone to make 
anything of him and his person. Uh, and then when the Mahayana came along, they said, well, okay, it's reminders of our practice. It's not a, about deification of him. I wonder if, uh, um, if you know if there's a pa- any passages in the scriptures and what your thought is about in the, that. In the Pali canon, there's none like that. Okay. And I don't believe there's anything, it's, uh, prohibi- any actual written prohibition against the images of the Buddha. It's just that uh, it's been noticed that uh, the surviving images of the Buddha don't start until around the year zero, first century. And so people have guessed that there was a prohibition, but there's no evidence of a prohibition. And there might have been statues earlier, but they might have been made out of wood rather than stone. And so we don't know, and no, we don't actually know. There's more challenges to make things out of, out of stone. And, um, and, 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 uh, and what's actually being depicted and why the avoidance of the Buddha images, we, we don't know. But I think that in terms of the Buddha prohibiting people from focusing on him, <coughs> As a person, uh, you see here, he, you know, this, this early text here, that the emphasis on the stupa and having a stupa where people can go to, and, and we didn't refer to it, but there's also the four areas of pilgrimage that he talks about and encourages people to go to the four holy sites of Buddhism. That's also kind of focusing on him. And when he asks, when he tells his attendants, step out of the way so that all the gods can see him, um, that's a very powerful... Um, I think a very powerful um, acceptance or approval, in a sense, of a worshiping of the Buddha, seeing the Buddha himself. And you have, find the languages there of seeing. And some of you know the, the Indian word, word darshan, means to see. And uh, it's a very important part of Indian spirituality, the seeing of a, something sacred, whether it's a sacred person, a teacher, a sacred site, a sacred monument, sacred mountain, sacred something. And that there's something very powerful in Indian spirituality about seeing and also being seen. And, uh, and it's somehow like if, if you're seen and, and see, you partake somehow, you're transformed somehow by what you see. And so that whole seeing aspect of Indian spirituality plays itself out in this visit where the first visit of um, all these gods who 12 yojanas away are stacked and trying to look... They're, they're, they're there to do this to this very powerful ritual act of seeing. And the Buddha's saying, get out of the way, let them do their seeing. And so part of the reason for uh, stupas, part of the reason for statues later on, is this thing of gazing and seeing. And uh, it isn't just simply it's inspiring to look at the symbol, but some of these statues, you know, the, the, the ritual for empowering a Buddha statue is opening the, the, the eyes. And again, the state of seeing. It's something... something uh, very powerful is transmitted through the eyes, something spiritual, and so even with a statue. So, was the Buddha discouraging worship of himself? He said, you know, those who see the Dharma see me, but those who see me see the Dharma. So, so if you see the Buddha, if you had a good chance of seeing him, then you can see the Dharma too. And if you, if you read the Pali Canon, the, the, like the Majjhima, the Middle-Length Discourse, one of the primary themes of the Middle-Length Discourse is the nature of who the Buddha was himself. Over and over again, there's reference back to the Buddha, what who he is, how he is in the world, and there's a lot, a lot of reference to that. It isn't just simply his teachings are important, who he was as a person is important as well. And um, if we too quickly dismiss the role and the importance of the Buddha by focusing only on his teaching and doing our practice ourselves, 
we miss a hugely important part of what the early tradition emphasized. And um, so I, I don't go along with the thing you said. Let me the last one, Ted, and then we'll take a break for lunch. Maybe this is too big a question to cover quickly, and maybe it's wrapped up in the whole day, but a lot of the devotional elements that we've talked about and are through here and the other sutras seem to be in direct opposition to the sanction against rites and rituals. And so what's the right balance? If you read some of his words, he's in seems in direct opposition to the superstructure that was wrapped around him even in his time, let alone later. I don't think there's any prohibition against rites and rituals in Buddhism at all um, in the early Buddhists. But what, but what, what, what it does say is that um, someone who becomes a stream mentor no longer relies or believes in rites and rituals. That's a different thing. And what they don't believe in is that rites and rituals are the way to get enlightened. But there might be all kinds of other functions of rituals besides getting enlightened. So, I hope this is interesting for you. And I apologize if, you know, the way it's set up today is I just talk. (laughs) My assumption is that it's hard and demanding to just listen to someone carry on a long monologue. But somehow I couldn't get organized to think of another way of doing this today. So this is my best attempt. And uh, so the afternoon we'll do these two things. We'll look at the nature of the Dharma itself and then more issues around actually the Buddha's death itself. So let's take an hour for lunch, and let's start again at um, 